today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Earlier this week, we heard of the Biden administration, along with Canada, accusing China of being behind the Microsoft Exchange hack of a few uh, months ago. China, on the other hand, is calling these accusations baseless and saying that they are being ganged up on by the U.S. and its Western allies. To talk more about all of this, Charles Burton is with us, Senior Fellow, Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the McDonald laurier Institute, and is with us now. Charles, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. It's good to speak with you, Scott. Good afternoon. So uh, give us an update on this hack. Bring us, uh, tell us the story again. How did, what, what happened here? Well, you know, a few years ago, um, when it became apparent that China was engaging in some fairly serious hacking to obtain commercial secrets to serve their Chinese enterprises, um, the Canadian government and the U.S. government separately negotiated with the Chinese government that there'd be some rules of the game, which is that, you know, if you're going to do uh, cyber espionage, you should keep it to military and political matters you shouldn't be um, using computer hacking to to gain trade secrets. So, you know, and it's just the way things are. We we basically steam open the electronic letters of the Chinese embassy in Ottawa. That's fair enough to try and see what they're doing if we can break the encryption. But uh, we wouldn't be, say, you know, the government on behalf of Bombardier telling them about um, comparative bids by, say, their Brazilian uh, competitor, Ambrer, or or providing, you know, commercial secrets and that sort of thing. It's just, it's just there seems to be a, a gentleman's agreement about the, the proper scope of use of cyber espionage. Um, China agreed to do that, and of course, you know, like so many things, uh, they didn't follow through, and now the Canadian government estimates that as many as 400,000 Microsoft Exchange servers have been compromised. The Chinese are hoovering up personal information for use in espionage and corporate secrets. And it's also alleged by the Americans, at least, that China's Ministry of State Security is using criminal contract hackers who are engaged in cyber extortion schemes, ransomware, and theft for their own profit. So, you know, it's pretty bad. And as you say, the Chinese government is just denying everything, which, you know, is not likely. I mean, all governments admit that they're engaged in this sort of activity within legitimate bounds. The Chinese government just won't talk about it and claim that they're completely innocent of anything. They aren't. How can you police the act of stealing? Um, well, I mean, I think that, that, you know, what we really have to do is appreciate that we cannot have any relationship of trust with the Chinese regime and have to start taking serious measures and encryption and security to protect our our critical internet uh, resources, and that costs money and energy and slows up our access to to websites and so on. But, you know, in this world, we really have no choice. And so, uh, you know, from that point of view, the Chinese are, are messing things up badly for us. And I think it's indicative of their overall plans to try and gain geostrategic advantage over the United States, become the dominant power on the planet and you know they work in the long term and this this gathering of huge huge amounts of data processed by artificial intelligence is part of that so i mean we shouldn't just blow it off you know this is serious serious business and the fact that the canadian government the u.s government and the eu have all made a statement about it is uh, indicative of how serious it is what's unfortunate is that the government of canada at least 
seems to be prepared to think that if they expose the Chinese that they'll feel embarrassed and will stop it. I don't buy that. I think the only way we'll get them to, to stop it is if we provide them with some incentive to do so. Uh, is it safe to say that China doesn't invent, it steals the information to event, invent? I'm sorry? Is it safe to say that China does not invent things, they steal the information in order to create things? Yeah, I think that, you know, that's been their modus operandi, to save on research and development by by stealing um, uh, data from, you know, sources that are the most advanced in the world, whether it be through, you know, getting Canadian scientists to turn over critical data by giving them some benefit to do so, or whether, if that doesn't work, through, you know, major, major, very sophisticated hacking to obtain the information that the Chinese state wants. I mean, the thing about it is that it's hard to deal with a country that just doesn't play by the rules of the game, whether it's hostage diplomacy or, you know, economic coercion of Canada through spurious uh, imposition of non-tariff barriers, you know, costing our farmers a lot of of money in, in contracts the Chinese just arbitrarily cancel to try and pressure the government. And I think the idea which you know, exists in some circles that we have to compromise with China or we won't get cooperation with them on climate change is probably uh, pretty much, uh, you know, not likely because any promises they make with us on climate change may not be any different from promises they've made on, with us on cyber espionage or, or their respect for the international rules-based order and diplomacy and trade. You know, they're just not, they're just not uh, collaborating in in the ways that other countries do to the mutual benefit of both you know we, they're just not they're just it's just impossible to to deal with them because we can't trust them uh you we've talked over over the months about how uh china's approach to the world has changed over the last decade or so that being said that play doesn't seem to be changing despite the two Michaels, despite the Huawei CFO, despite COVID-19, they still seem, uh, you know, hell-bent on this, on, on this direction that they are uh, going in. Why do you think that is? Do they view the pandemic as an opportunity for them? Oh, absolutely. I think that, um, you know, it's been great for their international um, uh, prestige in the third world. You know, China, by using extremely repressive measures, you know, locking people into their apartments so they don't go out and, and spread the virus, have been, has been relatively successful in containing this thing. And they've been able to, um, to show this to third world countries and say, look, you know, look in the West. They're all, uh, they're all dying because their governments just, uh, just aren't effective and interested in the interests of the people. Whereas in China, order has been maintained and, the people's health has been protected you know so at any point during that conversation at any point during that conversation does anybody say but yeah you're the one that started all of this well you know they say it, they they claim it maybe it came from the states maybe it yeah. came from italy maybe it came from anywhere but wuhan you know that's been their that's been their consistent line and i think that you know in some parts of the world um the chinese have credibility that the u.s doesn't and so you know, we all know that, that this is nonsense, but um, they're still able to, to sell it, and there's still a lot of countries in the world that support them. You know, if you look at the U.N. with regard to resolutions against the Uyghur genocide, 
um, you know, we might get, say, 40 countries supporting a resolution uh, condemning genocide in, in uh, the Chinese Northwest, and the Chinese can get double that number of countries that uh, that praise the Chinese uh, the Chinese government for its excellent policy towards Muslims. So, you know, we have right in our side, but it doesn't mean we're winning. Uh, four charged in this hacking uh, uh, issue. What does that mean? What happens now? Well, those are a separate. Uh, that's a, a slightly separate uh, group. But you know, these are are people that the United States uh, has identified as being um, com- complicit in computer hacking for to serve the Chinese state. Um, you know, companies, universities, government entities, dozens of computer systems stealing trade secrets and confidential business information. Um, you know, if those people happen to show up in a country that has an extradition treaty, they would be arrested, but I don't think that will ever happen. So it seems to be mostly about making a demonstration that we know who you are and uh, and uh, watch out. But they, you know, the larger hack of, of the 400,000 servers that's been going on for some time involves a much larger and more coordinated group than just those four guys. Although there uh, obviously gains support in the third world and in other developing countries where uh, you know they they promote you know how they've how they've uh, succeeded against COVID nineteen, do they care that they're losing all credibility in the first world? I think that you know China sees this as um, a coming Cold War. They believe, um, wrongly I think, that they have a critical advantage over the uh, U.S.-led liberal democratic West and that ultimately they're going to triumph. And so, you know, of course they would like to weaken the U.S. by drawing countries like Canada away from our alliance with the United States, you know, getting countries like Canada to try and play both sides of the street and not cooperate with the U.S. in trying to contain uh, China's um, violations of, you know, the established norms of, of trade and diplomacy, and you know the the institutions that are supposed to guarantee peace and economic justice and and um, and um, um, you know goodness in the world, like uh, like the UN, like the WTO, like like NATO, and so on. But um, uh, I think that we're we're heading probably to a conflict with China because China is just too confident that they'll be able to succeed in this and I don't think that we're going to simply give up you know our society in democratic ways uh, simply because China tells us they're the rising power and we ought to get into compliance with their way of doing things or Canada will suffer economically it seems in ways whether it's uh, on the internet or such their message does seem to be at least resonating or being heard here um, uh, is it safe to say that, um, in some way, whether it's through the internet or what have you, uh, they are promoting the divisiveness that we're seeing in the United States right now? Oh, yeah, I think so. And, you know, and the Chinese government is also trying to claim that any, um, criticism of China's domestic human rights violations or, uh, international behavior, no, whether it's in the South China Sea or cyber espionage or, or with the Uyghurs, is um, anti-Chinese racism and that, and that you know, it, it leads to, um, to ethnic hate between um, Chinese Canadians and, 
and the mainstream. Well, I mean, this stuff is just appalling. I mean, obviously, Chinese Canadians have absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with or any responsibility for the malign uh, activities of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, but China wants to, to claim that, that anyone of Chinese ethnicity in Canada supports their regime and purposes, which, uh, you know, is very, very troubling if people start to believe that. It could lead to, to um, you know, awful uh, consequences. And I think we have to do our best to, to support our Chinese Canadians who, you know, came here for freedom and democracy and opportunity and uh, don't support what the Chinese government wants to do globally. It seems that we, uh, the, it seems like the fact that more people want to live here or, or trying to come here or even North America for that matter than say want to go to China that doesn't seem to be resonating. I mean uh, again if uh, if China was the future and 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 was the beacon that they're selling why isn't everybody want to go there as opposed to coming here exactly i mean the chinese government doesn't have a a department of immigration like we do because you know nobody would want to move to mainland china and live under that repressive system so and in regarding your comment on Chinese Canadians, if life was so great there, like every immigrant, why do they want to come here? I mean, you know, it's common sense. They come here for the same reason every other immigrant comes here. It's hard to get here. You know, you, you, have, to have, you have to meet the criteria of Canadian immigration. We can't just let everybody in. And the Chinese Canadians that we do have have made exceptional contributions to our national life. You know, they, they work hard. They're educated. They're, they, they, they value... Um, the Canadian freedoms and democracy, and you know the fact that they look physically the same as as the the leaders of the Chinese Communist Party means absolutely nothing. Uh, we've certainly heard uh, that they are being influenced by the Chinese Communist Party. Is that as how prevalent is that? Well, I think that there is an attempt by the Chinese regime using um, their state agents in Canada, whether they're diplomats or, you know, other people that they've got here, uh, trying to menace and intimidate uh, Chinese Canadians or, um, or um, you know, people from China of Uyghur or Tibetan ethnicity. And, uh, you know, and, and to um, intimidate uh, citizens of the People's Republic of China who come here for, you know, study or work purposes. And that's completely unacceptable in our society and a violation of our Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And so I've been very disappointed that our government has not taken um, these concerns much more seriously, you know, declared persona non grata any diplomat working in a Chinese embassy or consulate who's involved in intimidation, harassment, or menacing activities. And if there are, you know, the Chinese agents in Canada who aren't diplomats you know, should be arrested and brought up before the court to be made accountable for this kind of violation of Canadian law. But up to now, it seems our government doesn't want to disturb the Chinese regime by, by cracking down on this. And, you know, it's a, it's a terrible betrayal of people who have come to Canada from the People's Republic of China to escape that regime, and the regime seems to follow them here. Give us an update on the two Michaels, the Huawei CFO case. Uh, where is all that now? 
Well, the Huawei case um, is proceeding. There'll be more um, uh, court processes in August. Uh, Meng Wanzhou's lawyers obtained some documents from the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank, which they claim um, would suggest that the Hong Kong Shanghai Bank already knew about Huawei's um, connection with the subsidiary that um, that that Ms. Meng Wanzhou, in a PowerPoint presentation, had told them had no connection to Huawei. So, in other words, they weren't defrauded because uh, they already knew. If they already knew, then why did Meng have to claim that there was no connection? Anyway, the whole thing is, it's really a question that our government does not want to hold the trial in Canada, that it, we're simply determining if she should be extradited or not. And, you know, she'll have an opportunity to defend herself in, in the Eastern District of New York State Court that's supposed to hear her case. And, you know, we have an extradition treaty on the basis that we believe that people who are sent to the United States for um, alleged uh, criminal activity will get due process of law. So so our uh, judge, Heather Holmes of the B.C. Superior Court, is not buying this idea that we need to, you know, assess the whole U.S. trial and simply going on the basis of extradition. So, you know, sometime early in the fall, uh, she'll make a ruling, most likely a ruling that Ms. Mung should be extradited to the United States, but then they can appeal, you know. And so the damn thing just goes on and on and on. In the meantime, Kovrigan's uh, favor are still living in Chinese prison hell, being deprived of, you know, any sort of basic contact with their family, we don't know if they've been inoculated against COVID-19. The whole situation is just, like, just terrible. And I my, I just pray that they're holding up all right under, you know, the prolonged, prolonged period. I think we're up to about 940 days since they were arrested for no reason but to try and pressure the government of Canada to release Ms. Monk. Charles Burton with us, senior fellow with the Center for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad at the Macdonald Laurier Institute, talking about Canada-China relations and where we are now. Charles, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a good afternoon. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, obviously, we've seen over the last couple of weeks uh, chatter of an, an action of the United States slowly pulling out of Afghanistan. Uh, and, and, of course, th- this discussion that we're about to have is not new. Uh, there were a lot of interpreters there that helped uh, the Canadian Armed Forces and U.S. Forces, for that matter, uh, in Afghanistan. And they are being left behind and have to fend for themselves uh, and have been for a while after years of serving with the Canadian Armed Forces. Some may, uh, were able to immigrate to Canada, others missed the window, and have been facing the threat of a growing Taliban resurgence since, of course, uh, troops started, uh, our troops started leaving uh, Afghanistan. So where does that leave these interpreters who were obviously uh, extremely valuable and help uh, the Canadian Armed Forces uh, during their time now? Let's introduce you to one. Uh, just going to use the name Alex, who worked with the Canadian Armed Forces, was left behind. It has been on the Roy Green Show many times and is now living in the United States. Alex, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Um, thank you very much for your time. Tell us your story, Alex. Uh, give us the abbreviated version of, of how you got to where you are. Um, yeah, it was really difficult. Um. I, I served alongside CAF members. I tried coming over there, but there was no way out for me. But 
when I applied for the special immigration visa, like SIV, which was uh, opened by the U.S. government, I could get out, you know. But it wasn't too easy, though. Like, I applied in 2015, and I got out of there, like, in 2021. Like, How did... Yeah, I faced, I faced lots of dangers out there. So, um, what can you tell us about finally getting out? Finally, like it wasn't, it wasn't that easy. They were all the same, you know. All the processes are the same, but the only process we very easy, which was the Canadian process, it ended really soon. I mean, they ended the program in. 2011, I think, yeah, in September. And right now, where I'm living is not, I'm not, I'm not feeling like I'm at home because my home was Canada. I could have been over there, you know, a long time ago, like a while ago, if the Justin Trudeau's administration could allow us to enter the Canada. But he slammed all the doors on us, especially the left behind interpreters and all that. So, did you miss the window to get in, Alex? How did that happen? Yeah, well, well, uh, there was a program for the Canadian interpreters. The program opened, like, back in, I don't know which year, but it ended in 2011, September. And during that time, I was working as an interpreter, Secretary of an Interpreter, alongside U.S. Armed Forces in Oregon Province, different province away from Kandahar Province. And I was not aware of the program. Hmm. I had lack of information. And I found out very late. I found out like about the program in 2014. And the program was not even open anymore. And that's why I missed the program. I couldn't get out. So uh, what can you tell us about actually getting out? How did this happen? How did you get out? Well, uh... I applied for the special immigration visa, and it was a it was a program for the interpreters from the U.S. government. Right. I served alongside the U.S. government. I was qualified for this program, and I applied in 2015. It took me years, and they asked me for documents. I didn't have the, like enough documents, but it was it was a miracle, you know. They helped me out. They approved me for this program. And I could get out of Afghanistan with my family. They provided me the visa. They provided medical check of everything. It is a long process. And finally, they took us out. So I'm in Dallas, Texas right now. I'm safe. But I feel sorry. I really feel sorry for the rest of the interpreters who serve alongside CAF members. They're still left behind. They're in Afghanistan. They're in great risk right now. I'm not kidding, my friend. We served all together, you know, in the same base, the same area, with the same people. Well, it's really, really bad. I really feel sorry, you know. They have families, they have kids. They are under great risk right now, my friend. When did you finally feel safe, Alex? When did you feel safe with your family? Uh, by the time when I landed in Chicago... And it was like uh, 21st of, uh, let's say, May 21st, 2021. 
I was like, oh my God, finally I could get out of the harms and I'm not inside the war zone anymore. I uh, felt like, I know I did, I'm, not, I'm not at home right now because my home was Canada. I had great love for Canada, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, I'm, I'm still thankful for the people who brought me here in the United States. So it was a long time. I was waiting for peace. I was waiting for tranquility for my family. There were too many procrastinations from the other countries like Australia, Canada, and the, but Poland did not have any program for me. But finally, I could come to the U.S. Uh, territory, and I felt uh, really, really like peaceful, like away from harms on May 21st. How's your family doing in the States? Um, they're really well. They're happy. Uh, my wife is pregnant. We're going to oh. have another baby, probably. Congratu- congratulations. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And on the other hand, my son, yeah, he's happy out here. He made, he made like, a couple of kids out here like as a friend. And I would like to also appreciate and thank the people who really stood alongside, like, behind, or let's say they supported me. Uh, one of them, Joe Warmington, Roy Greenshow, hmm. um, Robert Kyle, uh, Rob Ega, you know. I, I, I'm naming these people because they know me. And Wendy Nori Long, she did really good. Uh, Chris from the Canadian Heroes, he really helped me out, you know what I'm saying. And I have my Canadian mentors. I would like to name them because if they remember me, They'll give me like a shout or they'll give me a buzz or call me somehow. So Mike Graver was a good guy. Captain Mike Graver, Warren Officer Jerry Shaw was a great guy. You know, we were out on the field. Uh, Major Alexander Watson, he was also a good. I mean, they're all good. You know, they were all good. They were still. But I don't have any contact with them because I don't have their point of contact. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Corporal Nate Beemore. Our medic, Corey, I know all the team, but, you know what I'm saying, it was, re- it was really hard for me to get a hold of them. Ho- hopefully after this, uh, like, air, air, they will just uh, contact me, like, of course, because, well, some of them, they have my point of contact, you know what I'm saying. I'm really willing to talk to them and thank them for what they did for my country and your country, let's say. What tell everybody what exactly you did? What was your job with the Canadian Armed Forces, and how did you get um, that job? Okay, there was a company named IMS International Management Services. They were hiring interpreters, like local interpreters, and delivering them to, let's say, any team: U.S., Canadians, Australians, all teams. Let's say Britain. So I went to that company. I was qualified because the first. Thing they was asking, and uh, I mean they were asking with uh, languages, English, Pashtun, Dari, the three language which were the key language uh, for working as an interpreter. <coughs> I'm sorry, uh, I was qualified for it. Uh, when I started working, they <coughs> gave me a job with Australians, so I did it. <laughs> After work, 
<laughs> I started working as an interpreter alongside Canadians. Our job wasn't that easy. <laughs> we were <laughs> exchanging language for the uh, staff members <laughs> and Afghan National Army on the field. So we were coming under attack by the Taliban and other insurgents. There were IEDs planted, let's say, on the on the field. We, we didn't know, like, when is that going to go off? Because there were pressure-plate IEDs. There were heavy ambush by the Taliban and other extremists out there on the field. Uh, before we go further, let me tell you one thing else. Uh, before I started this job, they gave me a paper. And, and this paper, it was written a letter of consent or consentment. They, they were written like if you choose or prefer to work as an interpreter alongside any of the ISAF members, you're going to get killed on the field. You will lose your arm, your leg, you'll be, you'll be disabled or lame. So are you still willing to work? I signed the paper and I stood alongside CAF members on the front lines in Afghanistan. Yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't an easy, let's say, an easy job for me. We were translating, but and during this translating and interpreting uh, for the Canadian members, we received uh, firearms by the Taliban. Uh, it wasn't. It was like a miracle. I didn't die over there. Like we came under attack several times. My mentors, they know it. When we went to the Helmand Province uh, during the uh, joint operation. It was for a month or more. I survived during that operation. I didn't die. My friends, they survived. I'd, of course, we had casualties, but they were like ANA, Afghan National Army. We there were a lot of. I mean, there was a mass kill on the Afghan side, on the other ISAF members. But luckily, my CAF members, while I, while I was supporting them or helping, and language let's say, field, they were all fine. They, they all survived. Why did you sign up for this, Alex? Why did you want to do this? Because, you know, when I started working, I was 18 years old. And I had to work because Afghanistan is not like other countries. And my father was not working like what we needed. Like, we couldn't save much for the family. I love this job. This is one of the first answers. And the other one, because my family needed, I mean, they, they needed a financial support. And I was out there and I was, I was fine. Like I was not disabled. So why not working out there? And working as an interpreter was good. I mean, it was a good salary. The livelihood was good. Uh, that's why I prefer to go out there. Although my parents, they didn't like want me to go because mm -hmm they knew what's going to happen on the field. But I started working. When I started it, I really loved it. Uh, although I received threats from the insurgents and Taliban, but I never submitted to any of their uh, threats. I, I continued working. I continued all the way to 2021. And I started it in 2009. How dangerous is it? How dangerous is it for interpreters who are left there now, especially with the situation the way it is today? 
it's way dangerous right now, my friend. Uh, the Taliban took control of almost uh, 80 or 90 percent of uh, Afghanistan. The districts, the central districts were invaded by the Taliban. And, of course, when the media, on the press or in press conferences, they say, no, we have mercy on the people, especially the interpreters, they can stay in their country. That's just blah, blah, they're saying everything. But in, in the, behind the scenes, they're doing a lot of cruel, like cruelty stuff. Like they kill people, they torture people. Because if you remember, they lost men on the, let's say, fight. During these uh, two decades of fight, they lost men and women on the field. So that's why they're just here for the revenge. They are killing people, especially the interpreters. It doesn't matter who they serve with, but of course they are known as traitors. They, mm. I mean, the people who serve alongside ISAF and NATO forces, on and recently changed to RF Resolute Support Mission. There's no mercy on them from the Taliban and ISS or any other extremists, because the mission was to eradicate them. Like, when I say eradicate, eradicating means that extremists should be flashed out of Afghanistan and no more terrors, no more fights in Afghanistan. And that's why they're here. They want to retaliate. They want to show their men and the rest of their leaders, like, yeah, see these traitors, we're going to kill them. We take our revenge. And when there wouldn't be any more mercy on him. Of course. What message? Sorry, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, of course. If they kill an interpreter with a single shot in the head, that's fine. I mean, everybody would accept it. Okay, come and kill me, but don't kill my family, or don't yeah. torture them. They will torture them to the death. You know. Alex, what message do you have for Canadians on this issue and in Canadian government? What message do you have? Uh, it's a really kind request for, let's say, Prime Minister's administration and the rest of the Canadian authorities, officials. If you can help the left-behind interpreters who serve alongside, alongside CAF members, please do it now because time is running out. And, you know, you're already aware of the situation in Afghanistan. They have families. They have kids. Please help them as they help you. They're sh they served in uniform. They deserve it. I really feel sorry for them. But please, if you wanted to help them, help them as soon as possible before the time runs out. Or, or, or if, whenever it's going to get late, then we're going to regret. No, it shouldn't happen. Please help them. What out. is Alex, what do you think the future is? What do you think the future is of that area with the troops out of there? Like, what, what's the future hold? The future, I'm really sorry to, to say, but it's, I mean, obvious. I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. Panjway was a district which was really safe during that time when CAF members were stationed out there. Of course, there were some smaller firearms, but it was safe. Right now, it's under the control of Taliban. There are extremists only. They're killing people. They're killing the Afghan National Security Forces. There is no future for Afghanistan at all. Because all of them, all, all the forces left Afghanistan, they have to because there's no way to stay for a long time. 
it's the people inside that need to somehow solve and kill these extremists and, or maybe somehow negotiate with them or get the reach to a peace or if it's, it's like possible there is no possibility for a for afghanistan to have a peace there's no peace Alex has been with us. Alex is an Afghan interpreter who worked with the Canadian Armed Forces, was left behind. He's been on the Roy Green Show many times and is now living in the United States, safe with his family, expecting another member of that family, and uh, encouraging people to take note of this story and save those that helped us during this period. Alex, thank you so much for the story. Much appreciated. Be well, and good thank luck you. in the future with your new family. Thank you very much for your time. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.